Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you had terrific Thanksgiving holidays. Uh, and I'm glad you're here for our penultimate uh, Weiss lecture of the semester, um, though it will be the ultimate, knowing Hester Bloom as I do. This is going to be fantastic. How's that for pressure? Um, but you can handle it. Uh, our ultimate lecture will be uh, a, real, a real treat. Uh, David Liss, the best-selling author of six novels, including most recently The Devil's Company, which is a historical thriller set in the splendor and squalor of 18th century London that depicts the birth of the modern corporation, a British East India Company, will come to speak to us. Um, and it's going to be a, I mean, and that's again, once more through the generous support of the Josephine Perry Weiss Train, the Humanities Endowment, uh, the primary person walking down on cue, uh, <laughs> Linda Woodbridge towards me. Um, and so it, it's a real treat. Well, Wednesday, December 9th, which is uh, obviously the Wednesdays or the day before the Thursday lecture. So next Wednesday, December 9th at 730, uh, David Liss will talk to us on the topic of the art of the historical thriller, and he'll discuss the challenges inherent in writing historical fiction and read from his work in progress. Um, and that is at the Lipkin Auditorium. You know, at, the, at the Palmer, Lip, is Lip Kun, right? C-O-N, Auditorium at the Palmer Art Museum, 7.30 on Wednesday, December 9th. And there's an announcement from the Institute for the Arts and Humanities literally going out, I think, as we speak. Um, and then the next day, during our Weiss Seminar Lecture time, uh, Thursday, December 10th at 2.30 in 110 Business Building, we'll have our group discussion about the Whiskey Rebels. Um, and so... As I said to you earlier in the semester, the Whiskey Rebels is set in 1790s Philadelphia, New York, and wider Pennsylvania, and um, features risky financial schemes and panics that are reminiscent of the current uh, economic crisis. Um, and I think it's a really wonderful text for rounding up our uh, conversations and discussions together this semester. Um, so please join us for that. The way that will work is that I'm, I've got uh, about six or seven questions that will take about 20 minutes that I will ask him to get us started and then we'll turn things immediately over to the audience and you, because uh, I know you have all been dutiful about getting your books and doing your reading. I'd never have to worry about that. Um, Are you going to test out a sheet with the questions? What's that? Are you going to test out a sheet with those questions? Sure. You mean at the beginning, Shirley? Of the, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, we can. I can give you those. Um, they're not like discussion questions, if that's what you mean. They're, although the paperback edition of the novel has it has an interview in the back and some discussion questions, which I think are very helpful for, for you in guiding your reading. The Valentine paperback edition that's in now in its third or fourth printing. Um, where was I? So uh, he'll be here. He'll be here to take your questions. I, I would say we'll have a good, unlike the lectures, you'll have a good 30 or 40 minutes there where audience, all of you, public members of the public, students in my class who are obviously reading the text um, as our last text in the class, you'll all have that opportunity to, to engage him. And He's very excited about it, I might tell you. Um, he, he, uh, he came for a, re a significantly reduced fee, uh, and that was in part in some of the, he, he's brief in his communications, but substantive, unlike the novel. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's a bit weighty, isn't it? Um, he, uh, he's very excited to talk to us in the context of this seminar, because often, right, he's going out to give talks at, um, he's invited to give talks at uh, book fairs and 
uh, and he enjoys those. Um, but he knows that you're a fairly informed audience, <laughs> uh, and so he's very eager to see what kinds of questions you have and, and insights about the text. So please join us next week for our kind of celebratory final uh, lecture for the Weiss Seminar, third annual Weiss Seminar series. Without further ado, I'm going to turn things over to my partner in crime uh, over here, Dustin Kennedy, who's going to introduce our guest lecturer for today. Hello. I might add that it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Hester Blum, who is an associate professor of English here at the Pennsylvania State University. During my graduate degree coursework, I've had the pleasure of sitting numerous courses with Dr. Blum, all of which consistently offered thoughtful and provocative approaches to the study of U.S. literature. In a course on sentiment and sensation in the novel, she introduced me to some of the most popular texts from the 19th century, the bestsellers of the era, which had been forgotten and neglected for nearly a century by the Academy. In a course on periodical publication, I learned that many novels we take for granted as complete works, such as Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, were published in newspapers in small pieces, and they read much more like television series of today than like a whole novel. And very much in tune with her own research interest, she taught a seminar that studied the personal narratives and travel accounts that help us understand how people saw and reported their own world and the challenges that they face in society. All of this is to say that Dr. Blum's teaching of American literature is as thoughtful and careful as it is insightful and far re uh, reaching. Dr. Blum serves as a director of the Center of American Literary Studies here at Penn State. This new initiative is boldly attempting to return our university to the forefront of American literary studies a tradition begun by Fred Louis Petit, the first ever professor of American literature and namesake of the Petit wing of the Petit and Fraternal Library. Among many other exciting events in the spring, CALS uh, will host an inaugural conference for C19 titled Imagining a New Century, attracting prominent intellectuals near and far, uh, from near and far, to uh, consider innovative approaches to studying literature of the 19th century. So in addition to her teaching and her service, Dr. Blum has recently published a book titled The View from the Masthead, Maritime Imagination and Antebellum American Sea Narratives. This insightful study uncovers the reading and writing habits of sailors and their influence on, on uh, mainland publication uh, in fiction. And uh, I won't go into it, but it's a very good book. Uh, Dr. Blum also edited a new edition of Horrors of Slavery or The American Tars in Tripoli uh, by William Ray, which was first published in 1808. Uh, which describes the experience of being taken by cap uh, taken captive by North African pirates, uh, also in the news, uh, as much as uh, David Liss's uh, topic. Uh, today, Dr. Blum will discuss the Quaker City in the Sea, Philadelphia in Oceanic Literature and History. Thank you all for being here. Thank you so much, Dustin, for that very kind and generous introduction. Um, and thank you, Sean, for inviting me to give a, a talk in the series. It's a real honor and a pleasure. And I also owe thanks to the Weisses for making all of this possible and to Linda Woodbridge for her generous support of this particular series. So thank you all. And thanks for being here today. Um, today I'm going to talk about Philadelphia's maritime history and about sailors in the early republic more generally. Uh, my, my talk will have three components to it. In the first third, doing the math on my feet here, um, <laughs> I'll talk about sailors' literary culture. And what I mean by that is the ways in which sailors furnish themselves with books, 
what books they liked to read, what they thought about the books they read, and what books in turn they, thems in turn they themselves wrote, um, which is a, a subset of American literature that has been little studied to date, um, and something that I, I hope is changing. It seems to very much be changing. Um, in the middle third of my talk today, I'm going to tell you a bit about Philadelphia's role as a maritime center um, in the years after the Revolution um, through the first decade of the 19th century. Um, when Philadelphia was, as you've heard throughout the course of this semester in many of these talks, was um, a real national capital in both a literal sense um, as well as in um, various other social, economic, political senses as many of the speakers in the series have told you. Um, Philadelphia was a maritime center as well in a way that it does not continue to be um, in the same fashion, although it still obviously has a maritime presence. Um, and, in the, and, and what you'll find um, in, this, in that middle section is that many of the um, leading features of Philadelphia's contributions to the nation found their way into um, a very similar form in the way Philadelphia's citizens interacted with the maritime world and the global world more, more broadly, the global world. Um, and then the final third of the talk today, um, I'm going to tell you a bit more specifically about the Barbary Wars, um, early America's conflict with North Africa and with Islam more generally, um, something that, again, has been rediscovered to popular history in the last decade, um, largely due to current events, um, as well as to trends um, in scholarship that are looking more to um, the, the kind of transnational um, and broader dimensions of um, the early republic's um, interaction with um, the various peoples, cultures, religions, political views of the world. Um, and Philadelphia also plays a, an interesting role in that conflict. And I'll tell you a bit more about um, how that played out. Um, and we'll talk a bit about the figure that Dustin mentioned, um, William Ray, who wrote the um, captivity narrative, um, Horrors of Slavery, a, a very angry sailor, um, and, and one of my favorites. <laughs> This is my first PowerPoint, too. It's very exciting for me. The, um, so as, as I mentioned in the first part of the talk today, I'm going to tell you a bit about sailors as readers and writers. Um, this is an image, um, an undated image, um, but that I, I think probably comes um, from the second half of the 19th century that shows um, a ship, a tip in a, um, a, a sea that itself is um, uh, uh, in motion. And what you can see about this ship, in this particular ship cabin, is that it has um, a built-in bookcase. And there's a figure of a sailor who's handing out books to um, what probably are passengers and not themselves sailors in this instance. Um, as you can tell from the difference between the clothing that the uh, distributor is wearing here, he's wearing the loose blousey shirt that would be characteristic of sailors. He has a, a, a kerchief tied around his neck um, versus the, uh, the coats and pants and um, shoes, more formal shoes, that the passengers seem to be reading in this case. And there's someone who's um, lounging in his berth reading a book as well. That might, in fact, be a woman, but it's unlikely that a woman would be lounging in the kind of presence of gentlemen here. So. Um, but someone in, a, in a, a bit more casual uh, state of affairs here. Um, and this is a scene that um, might strike some of you as unusual, um, but in the First half of the 19th century, in particular, um, shipboard libraries were a growing and increasingly important phenomenon, um, and one that the general public knew little about except for those charitable organizations who were interested in encouraging sailor literacy, usually for the purposes of reading the Bible. But sailors took this literacy in a different direction. Um, and sailors were literate to a degree that is unusual for a working class. 
the most specific estimates that we have um, for sailor literacy around the year 18, or rather at the early part of the 18th century, so about 100 years before the time we're talking about here, um, place sailor literacy at around 75%, which is, again, a much higher level than you would find in most working classes. Um, for officers and for mates, literacy rates would have to be 100%. Writing was um, a function of the job. Um, but for even for ordinary seamen who would have no requirements to write while on the job, that rate was over 60%. And again, this rate, one would presume, would grow in the 100 years that would follow as literacy rates in general would rise um, throughout both the United States and throughout the, um, <coughs> the Western world. Excuse me. And one of the reasons that sailor literacy rates were so high was that literacy was a condition for sailors' advancement. And sailor, being a sailor tended to be a career choice for most men. Um, it, wasn't, um, it didn't lead to a very healthy or lengthy career for the most part. Um, sailors were notoriously broken down, dissolute individuals. Um, they had a career that was akin in some ways to some professional athletes in the sense that their working years were cut short by the kind of degree of difficulty and the high rate of injury. Um, but literacy was something that was not only encouraged by the structure of the job, it was something that was trained and taught on the job. And so narrative after narrative written by actual sailors, and this is a literature I'll talk a bit more about in a minute, mention the reading that's being done at sea all the time. Um, and I'll say more about those books in just a second as well. They also mention the opportunities for learning how to read and for learning mathematics. Because mathematics was, of course, another condition for advancement to the condition of mate, being able to calculate longitude and latitude um, and perform other kinds of mathematical equations that were uh, job dependent. Um, would be, again, something that was quite frequent. Naval ships had schools. Um, some of the more elite merchant ships would have schools. But even um, the, the shorter term or less glamorous and less elite forms of merchant service or whaling at the, at the most basic level um, had a really active culture of reading and writing. And one of the ways that we can see this is in the records left behind um, more formally, in this case, um, from, by the US Navy. Um, this is a document from 1839 that gives a list of the following books, which were furnished for the use of vessels of war when on a cruise, and for the use of Navy yards until otherwise ordered. Um, I don't know how well you can see, I don't know that my pointer may fit, maybe it's at this point here, um, how easily you can see some of the, the works on this list. But on the right-hand column here, you'll see um, the name Cooper. And James Fenimore Cooper, who many of you will probably best know as the author of the Leatherstocking Tales, uh, wrote 12 sea novels, which were very popular at the time, were critically really well received, and were widely read by sailors who had a lot of criticisms about Cooper's um, seamanship, but who still read his works. And Cooper's also the author of A Naval History of the United States, which you see listed here, as well as some of his um, earlier sea novels, The Pilot, The Red Rover, The Water Witch, and Homeward Bound. Um, again, not works that are taught in today's 19th century American literary classrooms at all. Um, what you can also see here, there are some religious documents, um, but for the most part, the naval list consists of histories. Um, the, it's, it's kind of hard for me to see, so let me see if I step back. Um, you'll see that um, Lager's Travels is here. There's a lot of voyages, voyage narratives for the most part. Um, a range of reading that is fairly representative of sailor interests and tastes. Tales of histories, tales of travels were very popular. The novels of the day were also popular. What the naval list excludes, that is also popular with sailors, of course, but don't usually make it onto lists, are um, pornographic readings, um, which are 
widely reported in C narratives as something widely available and the dark sides. Um, but newspapers were especially valued as well. And these are not going to show up on library lists, but sailors talk about getting a hold of a newspaper and passing it around constantly. Um, so there are official records of certain kinds of books that are read, as well as the, um, what we might think of as a less official record that shows up in sailors' narrative. Um, another perspective comes from um, one of the narratives I'm mentioning. Um, this is one that's published anonymously. Um, called Life in a Man of War, which is um, about the USS Constitution, um, the famous ship that you may have seen in Boston Harbor to this day, um, that was commissioned um, at the end of the 18th century. Um, it's the oldest vessel still afloat in the world. Um, and she was cruising the Pacific in um, the 1830s um, when this particular narrative was written. Um, and in it, the sailor describes, and he does this repeatedly throughout the, the, the narrative, scenes of reading aboard ship. One of his chapters is called The Literary Tars. His preface talks about how sailors, every sailor writing a narrative knows today that you have to have a preface for your book. That's just something that we have in books today. They all must have prefaces that make apologies. So they're aware of the conventions of publication at the time. Um, and here our anonymous sailor says, who will say then that some of the inmates of a vessel of war do not thirst after literature? To illustrate the fact, just glance your eye along our ship's decks when lying in port. Under the break of the poop, you may observe a group of mizzen topmen eagerly listening to some more talented shipmate who, with voice and effect worthy of the subject, is reading aloud passages from one of the splendid and romantic poems of the celebrated Byron. In the larboard gangway are assembled, distorting their visible muscles at the trying, though ludicrous, scenes in Marriott's Jacob Faithful or Midshipman Easy. Again, on the starboard side, amongst the main topmen, a little coterie are gathered together, wrapped in profound silence, every ear intent, with open mouth, swallowing some of Cooper's thrilling descriptions of nautical life, or digesting the eccentricities of Scott's liquor-loving Peter Peebles, or the original and trite remarks of Boz's inimitable Sam Weller. And so this presents a real range of the popular literature at the time, um, from Byron's poetry, which was popular with sailor, sailors because he talks about the sea, um, to Scott's novels and Cooper's novels. Scott's a, a big favorite of sailors and everybody else reading at the time. Um, Marriott is the British naval novelist um, who is also very popular with sailors and is the, the kind of go-to guy in many ways. Um, but it shows a real collectivity that we can see here, um, that reading is something that is done communally. And this is, um, rhymes with the way reading in early America tended to function as well. Um, reading for us nowadays tends to be a solitary pursuit. It's not something that we do um, in groups for the most part, except in classrooms, which is the beauty of the classroom. But for the most part, if you're picking up a novel at home, you're not reading it aloud usually to a housemate. Um, you're not sharing the novel um, in, a, in a kind of broader circulation, unless maybe you pass the novel along to a relative, but it doesn't tend to be a kind of collective experience in the same way. In the early America, and this is tr as true of sailors, <coughs> reading tended to be a much more communal activity. People would read aloud in groups, um, which is why literacy estimates um, for um, early America always point out that for every one person who may have owned a book, we can presume that four or five people had read that particular book. So there's a real kind of geometric effect in a kind of secondary literacy of people who may not even in fact know how to read, but who had access and knowledge, who in fact had heard the book, um, it performed in this ki same kind of setting. And so for even that small percentage of sailors who didn't know how to read, um, they would still have access to 
a broader world of books, as scenes like this, which are, this is a fairly representative one, although a little more colorful than many, um, will attest time and time again. Um, another way that sailors got books, got a hold of books, was through charitable organizations, as I mentioned before. Um, here's a book list from the American Seamen's Friend Society, which is one of the major, probably the largest of these organizations. Um, and what these organizations, in fact, did was assemble lending libraries that were in little cases. Um, they were about a couple, three feet long, probably a foot or two wide, that would have a set list of 40 or so books. Um, and some of these cases exist, which is really cool, and were decorated and painted by sailors. Um, and these tended to have more religious content than uh, the naval list does, and the individual list that we'll look at in a minute um, did as well. But even so, you can see that there are some interesting choices here. In addition to um, the religious uh, uh, materials on this list, you've got um, a book that's listed here as Life Before the Mast, which is probably a reference to Richard Henry Dana's very famous narrative, Two Years Before the Mast, um, which came out in 1840 and which is the, the most popular sea narrative of the century. Um, and any other sea narratives that you read that follow 1840 are lifting everything they do from Dana and very much of uh, um, what uh, um, the kind of familiarity that an American public would have had with sailor life would have come from that book. What you can also see before here, you've got a life of Columbus. This is probably the Irving version. Um, there's a, a book called Polar Seas, which is probably John Ross's um, polar exploration narrative. I hope I didn't screw that microphone up. Um, the Seaman's Friend, which was also written by Richard Henry Dana. Um, and then interestingly, up here, Emma is another novel that shows up on the list. Um, and so even in this Seaman's Friend Society list, which is going to be attentive to the, the moral shaping of sailors and, um, the, and, and trying very specifically to have a hand in the kind of books to which they had access, um, there's room for a certain kind of novelistic play and for authors that you might not expect to find aboard a ship. Um, and one of the other things that the quotation that I put up here calls attention to is that most of these libraries were subscription libraries. Um, and this meant that the sailors, once again, collectively, would give a dollar, give 50 cents, and would then in turn purchase a library for the ship. Many ships that didn't have either a Seaman's Friend or a, uh, one of the, the loan libraries that the Seaman's Friend Society put out, or were not naval ships and therefore didn't have the formal naval library, um, many of these ships would have informal libraries that sailors themselves would put together whether by buying books or by just bringing a copy or two of a book that they might own and then would trade amongst other sailors on the ship. This is something that's documented in virtually without exception in the first person narratives written by sailors in the 19th century. Here's a, um, a really interesting document, and this is again a, a relatively rare one. Most sailors would talk about the books they would read here and there in their narratives, but few made as explicit a list as the mate of the whale ship Charles W. Morgan did. Um, this is a man named John Os James Osborne, writing in um, 1842 and 1843, and lists the books that he's read during his four-year whaling cruise. And as you can see, it's, a, it's quite a long list. Um, and it's a list that has, I've pulled out a few of the examples. They tend, they tend to be broken down into kind of three general categories, uh, much like the other list that we saw. Um, he reads a lot of novels. He reads 12 volumes of Bulwer-Lytton. Um, for those of you who are um, not 19th century Americanists, Bulwer-Lytton is the, the kind of trashy novelist of the day. Um, the, the famously mocked opening line, it was a dark and stormy night. Um, 
widely considered to be the, uh, the one of the worst <laughs> um, opening sentences of a novel ever. Um, it's from a Bulwer-Lytton novel. Um, the contest today that rewards the worst opening sentence is, is the Bulwer-Lytton contest. Uh, but very, a very popular novelist in Brit for British and American audiences alike. Um, you see that these novels also include Pamela Samuel Richardson's um, novel of seduction, um, Humphrey Clinker, Pathfinder and the Pilot are both James Fenimore Cooper C novels in this case. Um, many popular travel narratives of the time are also listed here, um, as well as temperance tracts and conduct manuals. And this is why this is a particularly valuable um, logbook entry, because this is the kind of reading that's not going to show up on a naval list, and it's not going to show up even on um, the kind of loan libraries that sailors might have put together themselves, because these are ephemeral works. They're pamphlets for the most part. They're not bound volumes. Um, and so as a consequence, don't usually get placed on those lending lists, on those library logs. Um, and here we find the sailor reading tracts on dissipation, um, tracts about a husband's duty to a wife, the health advisor, um, Alcott's Young Man's Guide. This is a very popular um, guide at the time. Um, so what we see here, our sailors um, desire to better themselves, um, their moral conduct, their social standing. Um, these kind of gentlemen's conduct manuals are also very popular at sea. Um, and there's a certain kind of pathos um, and sweetness to that, I find, um, as well. Um, and there's a pride here in the list of the number, and because you'll notice, you may be able to see in the, in the column here, he's listing the number of volumes each book is. <laughs> many of which are multiple volume works because again, um, these are, this is an age of, of large novels. Um, and, and so this is a, a really great glimpse uh, into the kind of reading habits of sailors at the, at the time. Um, um, sailors in popular mythology um, and in the popular imagination at the time were, they, they were, profane, drunken um, louts, for the most part. Um, they had a bad image based on their behavior in port. Um, and as you might imagine, sailors coming in off a cruise that could range from a couple months to four years um, had the bad habit in port of um, drinking, whoring, gambling, and blowing all their money. Um, they would lose it to um, rapacious landlords as well. Um, and had a, a generally a bad reputation. So a lot of sailor literature, the literature that they wrote themselves, was trying to kind of rectify this, this, uh, this view or justify on some level why these behaviors were necessary. Um, but another reason that sailors' status in this world was a rather a tenuous one had to do with certain political circumstances at the time at sea. <laughs> the document before you here is a, a seaman's protection certificate. Um, and as um, I explained in the gloss here, um, these were documents that sailors tried to carry around to prove that they were US citizens. And if they were US citizens, the logic went. Sailors couldn't then be impressed onto predominantly British warships. Um, and this was the process by which a British warship would go up to an American merchant ship and say, for example, and this is again a pre-revolutionary moment, um, and would say, we need sailors. We'd like those three likely looking men, or those 10. Um, and this is a, a really common um, practice. It was one that was widely despised. Um, it's a practice that leads um, relatively directly to several wars. <laughs> um, it's a, a big factor in the Revolutionary War. It's a major factor in the War of 1812. Um, and the, the indeterminate position of sailors in this kind of maritime world was a curse to them as well as a blessing. Um, it's a, really an opportunity for 
men to, for men to have the opportunity to start over. Um, the jumping from ship to ship in port was something that could be done um, relatively easily. Um, there's also a lot of violence attendant upon that kind of jumping. Um, press gangs did not only exist in the form of official naval functions, um, there were also um, um, men called crimps who, for the most part, um, although there are lots of other different names for them, who would um, get sailors really drunk, seem to be a friend, a benevolent friend to seamen, take them to a pub, um, get them liquored up until they couldn't stand, and then the, when the sailor awoke from his drunken haze, he was a day out at sea already on, on a ship that, had been, uh, that he'd been pressed um, illegally onto. Um, and so these seamless protection certificates were designed to try to assert a citizenship status that would supposedly exempt American sailors from such behavior. And in practice, they had virtually no effect. Um, they they were, could be easily forged. They could be accused of being forged. Um, the, there's many a, a reference um, throughout literature um, to sailors having multiple documents depending on what kind of condition or position they found themselves in. And this is a, a problem um, in part, excuse me, in, in part because um, the, the, the maritime world, and this is not just one that, uh, that happens between Britain and America at the time. Um, all of the European powers, North Africa, the Caribbean, South America, um, are trading in the same waters for the most part. And um, many of these, the nations that um, come from these regions had a long, not only a long maritime history, but a long history of moving bodies and ships around between nation to nation. Um, there's a real flexibility here. And again, this has some advantages for sailors and opportunities, but for the most part, it's a really um, unstable um, position. And one of the ways that we can get a, a, a particularly graphic sense of this comes from a sailor who had been a, a captive in Algiers, and I'll say more about um, that kind of captivity later. But this is a passage that describes what happens after he's released and redeemed from captivity. Um, so he spent a couple years as a slave in Algiers. Um, I understand that you read the Rosen play, Slaves in Algiers. Um, conditions a little different um, for Joseph Foss than the, John Foss, rather, than they are described in that play. Um, but once he's released from captivity, you would think that he might have clear sailing home. But instead, as Foss tells us, I embarked in the quality of a passenger on board a poleacre, which is a certain smaller ship, <coughs> bound to Philadelphia. We sailed on the 4th, and on the 11th, was taken by a Spanish privateer and carried into Barcelona, was cleared on the 12th and sailed again, and on the 20th was captured by a French privateer and carried into Almeria, treated politely and cleared on the 22nd, and sailed. On the 29th, the wind having been contrary for several days, we run into Malaga, where we waited for a fair wind until the 21st of May. We then sailed, and on the 22nd was boarded by His Britannic Majesty's ship Petrel, treated very well and permitted to proceed on our voyage. On the 23rd at 6 a.m. was boarded by two Spanish privateers. This goes on for another paragraph or so. I've only given you a bit of it. Um, he eventually makes it home. Um, but this process by which there's a constant intervening um, of other ships, most of which involve the payment of fake taxes. Um, in order to proceed, you either need to give me a share of your goods or you need to give me some cash. And this is happening constantly. Um, and privateers, um, for, for those of you who are not maritime history buffs, are merchant ships that are allowed, it's a, it's a kind of a delicate line always between piracy and privateering. Um, privateers are authorized by their state government to intercede, um, to intercept rather, other ships um, and demand of them either a tribute or a tax or some kind of payment um, or seizure of the ship and its goods altogether. Um, and this is done um, by, again, all of the major powers of the Western world. 
Um, it's something that is a, a real underlying factor in many of the wars that are happening in the 20 or 30 years that have been described throughout the course of this class. Um, and so that kind of motion is something to keep in mind um, in, as we move now on to um, a discussion that I'll, 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 I'll have for you about um, Philadelphia's role in this particular moment. Um, as you've learned throughout the course of the semester, um, Philadelphia is the capital of the United States. <coughs> Population in 1800 is around 70,000 people. Um, it's the center of a really vibrant trade. Even though Philadelphia itself um, is about 75 or 100 miles, depending on what you're judging, from the actual open ocean. Um, it's upper river. And it's a river that um, is tidal, however, until well past Philadelphia. But it's not the easiest or most accessible port, which is one of the reasons why Philadelphia, the port of Philadelphia today um, is like the 23rd biggest port in the country. Um, after towns that you probably have never heard of l along the Gulf. Um, it's, it's not a major port anymore. Um, for those of you, anytime you fly into, say, Newark Airport or some other airports, you'll see these giant container ports um, that have the containers that go on the back of 18-wheeler trucks. Um, that's where the action in ports is today. And if you don't have a container port, then your city cannot succeed um, as a major port anymore. Um, and Philadelphia just doesn't have the, the, the land or the, uh, the water um, to sustain that. Um, and so Philadelphia at the time, though, was still, um, in, in this particular period, still a really vibrant maritime center. Um, and it traded with the West Indies. It traded with South America. It traded with Britain. Um, some of the goods that were coming out of the port of Philadelphia included flour, which was something that much in demand in the West Indies in particular, um, bread and cheese, which would predominantly be sent to um, the southern states. The Carolinas um, had a big trade between Philadelphia and bread and cheese. Hides, rum, sugar, wood were all being sent to Britain constantly. Um, and in 1800, in Philadelphia, there were 14 shipyards. There were 17 chandlers, which is um, the name for the profession that provides supplies to shipbuilding. There were 20 riggers and 43 sailmakers. So this was a, a real big industry. Um, and there were ports that... Um, there were docks that, that spread from one end of the city to the other. Um, the only remnant of this right now is the, the sad case of Philadelphia's Naval Yard, um, which has uh, changed hands a lot even in the last decade or so and has um, been a real kind of source of anxiety for residents of Philadelphia for this large piece of land that, has, um, that, that Philadelphians have not known what to do with. Um, and this, uh, um, here's a view of... Philadelphia from the Navy Yard. The Navy Yard's a little farther south than the what is called Center City or the downtown part of Philadelphia. Um, and what you can see from the Naval Yard um, are how busy the port is. Um, you can see this is a, a, a drawing from a little later. There's some steam vessels that are operating here in the river at this particular point. Um, you've got large masted ships that are would be bound to longer voyages of a year to four years. There are smaller crafts that would be plying the coastal trades going up and down the coast. Um, as well as perhaps pleasure rowers here or fishermen here. Probably a fisherman, I see. A, I guess that's probably a, a pole. Um, you can see a real vibrancy to that port. And I, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about one um, ship captain who provides a kind of representative figure for the ways that his, um, his, his maritime activities were functioning at the time. This is uh, Captain James Josiah, who is prominent enough to be painted by Charles Wilson Peel, who's the preeminent Philadelphia artist. Um, and portraitist. Um, as you can see, he's in his um, captain's formal clothing. He's got his charts in front of him. 
Um, his prosperous ship is sailing off through the window. He's in a cabin of a ship, which you can tell by the slant of the windows here. Um, and his uh, own transit through the world um, is another representative one. He began, his father was a merchant, merchant seaman. He began his own maritime career as a cabin boy in the West Indies. This is a very common thing to do. And these were relatively short voyages. Um, and so it would be a, a way to get started when you were 12 or 13, which is what cabin boys tended to be. Um, he later was a captain in the Continental Navy um, and then became a privateer um, also in the, um, during the Revolutionary War. Um, so he served in two different capacities, in the actual naval capacity as well as in privateering. Um, he later entered the sugar trade to St. Croix in the West Indies. Um, he took a step up in the length of his voyages and took a step down in his actual um, position by taking a, a, a berth as a mate on a trip to, to China, to the Canton trade for silks, which was a, another industry that was growing in Philadelphia at the time. Um, he later became a packet in the London, uh, captain in the London packet trade, which is um, one of the more kind of elite merchant trades, sending mail and um, not heavy cargo, but on fast ships that had passengers and was a, a pretty fancy way to sail. That first image I showed you of um, passengers reading books from the library at sea was probably from that kind of a ship. Um, he was um, a little old when the, by the time the War of 1812 came around, but he was someone who helped form defense committees around Philadelphia um, and then ended up becoming quite successful as a partner in a ship chandlery, one of these supply um, stores. So as you can see here, the, the kind of orbit or circulation of this particular captain hits internationally. Um, he's, he's going, he's traveling to all of the kind of major trade centers at the time. He's involved in both the local level in governance of the Philadelphia's own maritime economy, um, as well as contributing to this kind of global trade. And here's a view um, of the Arch Street Ferry, which is, again, would be right off of um, the, what is now called the seaport, South Street Seaport, or it's not South Street Seaport, Independent Seaport in Philadelphia. Um, Arch Street is right off of Market Street, um, the kind of center of trade at the time. Um, this is a, an image that comes from Birch's views, um, which um, William Birch was a, a, a British engraver who came to Philadelphia in the eight, 1790s and was blown away by the prosperity of this mercantile city and did this really amazing series of beautiful, really beautiful colored engravings of the streets of the city, um, very popular. And um, the next couple of images are from Birch's views. Um, in this, in the Arch Street Ferry, you again, you see one of the larger masted ships that's going to be going around the world, um, most likely on one of the larger trades. You see a smaller ship that would be involved in probably the local coastal trade. Um, you see a boys loading barrels. Um, here you have uh, um, what seems to be um, younger workers, black and white, working together here. There are women saying goodbye or looking out to sea, um, someone fishing off the dock. Um, there's a, a real diversity of views here um, of, of Philadelphia's citizenry. Um, and one of the figures in shipbuilding um, that should be mentioned in Philadelphia is um, Stephen Gerard, um, who was, um, has become known for other things in Philadelphia, um, and to this day is a, a source of um, distress because of the school that bears his name. Um, he wanted to start a, a boarding school for poor, poor white male orphan children, um, which <laughs> remained under those designations until just a few decades ago. Um, although I think the orphan thing dropped out. Um, and he, um, in this particular case, though, is known for his um, 
strong financial support of Philadelphia's maritime economy as well as the U.S. Navy. Um, he uh, helped to finance the war. His ships were all named after people like Voltaire and Montesquieu. Um, he was a real man of the Enlightenment um, in many ways, not all. Um, and so he's someone who's uh, um, a prominent figure um, in, this, in this waterfront. And he's also involved in, um, this is another Birch's view, of, in the building of um, a new series of warships. Um, the Revolutionary War was not kind on the US Navy. Um, all ships were destroyed, essentially. Um, very few remained, no warships. And so when, um, in, in the period that led up to what is known as the Quasi-War with France, 1798, um, when there literally um, had been no, there were no ships remaining, um, the US Navy's formed in 1794, um, and ships needed to be built. They had to be commissioned, because um, they didn't exist. And all of the major cities along the East Coast were involved in building one of them. And, the, and they were all named for the cities that they were built. And the Philadelphia is, ship is the Philadelphia. Um, about which you'll hear more later because it's the major ship in um, the first Barbary War, the Tripolitan War. Uh, and this is a, also from Birch's views. This was a major citywide event. Um, Philadelphia citizens raised $100,000 in one week to finance this ship. In one week, $100,000. Yeah. It's very gratifying to get the gas from the audience at that number. Um, <laughs> the, if only I had more statistics I could throw at you. Um, I'm looking for them. They, they're not authentic. Um, and this is a, a ship, the shipbuilder Josiah Humphreys is pictured right here, um, where again, this is a kind of collective endeavor, not just of the financial world of Philadelphia. And if you looked at the list, there's a subscription list that was published of all those who gave money. And if you know anything about Philadelphia, every street name in Philadelphia other than the tree streets is represented by one of the names on that list. The Biddles are all there. Um, all the kind of major figures of Philadelphia at this time are represented on this list and gave thousands of dollars. And the average donation was around $600 um, per person. In one week, they raised this money. Um, and this is a ship that's in preparation for war to defend commerce. Um, and this is a commerce that's under um, the depredations of French privateers at the time. In, in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, um, the various treaty agreements and protections that um, American ships had had, um, thanks to their British allegiance, um, were gone. And American ships became a target, not just of the French, but as we'll see in a moment, of um, the North African um, states, who had their own, known as pirates popularly, their own privateering vessels, um, probably more properly. Um, but the Philadelphia is a ship that's built initially to fight in the quasi-war with France. And it becomes known as the most famous ship in the Barbary conflicts, which come next. Um, in this map of North Africa here, you can see um, over here is Tripoli, now modern Libya, um, followed by Tunis, just to its west, and then Algiers, which is uh, the place where the most, now Algeria, um, the place where the most captives were held um, historically, not just in terms of America. Um, and also Morocco, which is another um, privateering state. These are the four major North African nations that are involved in privateering. And it's estimated that from four, 1492, after the Moorish expulsion from Spain, um, through 1820, that one million Westerners were taken into North African captivity. Um, the estimates range from 800,000 to 1.3 million. But a million is the figure that most people seem to acknowledge. Um, in the course of um, the last decade and a half of the 18th century and the first decade and a half of the 19th, 
Um, over 700 Americans were added to that number. And again, these are sh ships that became targets after British protections were gone. Most of the European powers had negotiated treaties with these North African states for hundreds of years. And they were treaties of payment in order to avoid captivity. Um, there were very few militaristic encounters in those hundreds of years between the European states and the North Africans. There were some, but they were always ineffective. And ultimately, France, Spain, France and Spain were the biggest targets um, for obvious reasons of geography. Um, the French and the Spanish paid millions of dollars over these centuries to the North African states in order to keep their goods safe. Um, and one of the reasons that the, and this is one of the reasons that Barbary captivity and Barbary piracy has become of new concern in our current political moment, even though the, uh, the actual comparisons and the events themselves are, are inaccurate um, and, and not reasonable ones. Um, the, the standard historical mythology that has elements of truth to it, and many elements of truth to it, is that once the United States decided, this is crazy, why are we paying all this money? If we keep paying money, they can just keep taking more ships and then demand more and more money. When will it stop? Let's build a navy and go fight them. Um, and this ultimately worked. It took a few wars for it to work, but it ultimately worked. And it ultimately worked um, in concert with the other European powers, although it took a little while for that to happen as well. Um, and so this seem, was seen to be a, a way of, and the recent rhetoric has put it as a way of standing up to terrorism, not negotiating with terrorism, um, which is a, a rhetoric that obscures somewhat the way that this, these forms of captivity were functioning, which were always about economic exchange. Um, the North African captives were called slaves universally um, throughout the, the period, um, through the literature and the politics, um, and in fact were enslaved and were treated very poorly, but the conditions of their enslavement were radically different from chattel slavery in the sense that their, their nationality didn't matter, religion did matter. If you did what was called turning Turk and became a convert to Islam, many would be um, not freed necessarily from captivity, but relieved of some of the more onerous works. Um, many did this. It usually meant um, not being able to return to um, your Christian nation, ultimately. Um, but this was not a kind of condition of the captivity in and of itself. They, the captives were always figures for economic exchange. They were put to work as galley slaves. Um, some of the harsher conditions, as well as galley slavery, included a punishment called the bastinado, um, whereby um, the feet were whipped. Most of the Americans um, who wrote narratives of their experience describe either undergoing the bastinado themselves or seeing their fellow shipmates endure it. This is a, a kind of torture that um, became notorious at the time, but at, from what I understand, it was practiced um, around the globe. But this is the association that people had with it. Um, one of the famous captives, not of this particular moment, this, he was someone whose um, who ship just wrecked on the coast of Africa and was taken into Barbary captivity, um, independently of the kind of state-sponsored privateering ventures. James Riley is someone who nonetheless writes a narrative whose um, popularity was huge and widespread. Abraham Lincoln cites his narrative as as influential to him as the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and I, I've put him up here in part because of his enduring um, popularity for his own narrative of his captivity, but also because um, Riley, the quotation you see here, where Riley reflects in the aftermath of his captivity that adversity has taught me some noble lessons. I have now learned to look with compassion on my enslaved and oppressed fellow creatures, kept at hard labor and smarting under the savage lash of inhuman mercenary drivers. Um, what James Riley here is talking about is American chattel slavery. 
and he was not an, an abolitionist before his own captivity. And afterward, in the last lines of his narrative, essentially says, wait a minute, this is not the way any person should, experiences that anyone should have to share. Adversity has taught me that nobody should be enslaved. This is the kind of language that um, many abolitionists took up. And Barbary captivity narratives and the stories that were coming out of North Africa at the time were taken up by abolitionists as ways to um, relativize the problems that slavery represented. Um, another captive um, on the ship Philadelphia, which I'll tell you about now, was um, the, this William Ray figure, the very angry sailor I mentioned before, um, who himself had made the connection between American chattel slavery and North African captivity um, earlier. He also made that same connection to service in the US Navy, which he felt was just as despotic um, a command as any kind of slave masters would have, have, have had. Um, and here's a, an excerpt from William Ray's um, very long poetic preamble to his narrative. When he gets particularly angry, he turns to verse. Um, <laughs> it's true. Uh, he would write long, angry letters to the governor of New York State, entirely in, in verse as well. Um, <laughs> they're, they're fantastic. Are you Republicans away? Tis blasphemy the word to say. You talk of freedom, out for shame. Your lips contaminate the name. How dare you prate of public good, your hands be smeared with human blood. How dare you lift those hands to heaven and ask or hope to be forgiven? How dare you breathe the wounded air that wafts to heaven the Negro's prayer? And while you thus inflict the rod, how dare you say there is a God that will in justice from the skies hear and avenge his creature's cries? And so William Ray is the one who most sort of eloquently and um, angrily, again, um, brings together these various forms of um, tyrannical rule, Barbary captivity, American chattel slavery, um, and US naval discipline. Um, <laughs> he's someone who, um, I'll just say very briefly, and I'll conclude in a moment, um, he had, he was a ship, uh, I'm sorry, he was a newspaper editor, he was a, a writer initially, and he'd had several failed newspapers, and had come to Philadelphia in 1803, thinking that he um, was going to be offered a newspaper editorship. But he was sick, and it took him a while to get down there, and by the time he got to Philadelphia, the job had been given away, and he was in despair, and sitting on the banks of the Schuylkill River, thinking about suicide, um, and then decides instead to enlist in the Navy and joins the USS Philadelphia, that ship that we saw being built a few slides ago, um, in order to go then join the squadron that was helping to enforce the blockade of North Africa. Um, and this is a moment for those of you who, who know your Moby Dick at the beginning when Ishmael's having these suicidal thoughts and thinking, um, when I feel like killing myself, I go to sea, and it's never clear whether he's going to sea to actually kill himself or to get away from thoughts of killing himself. And William Ray has this precise moment, you know, 50 years earlier, of thinking, do I kill myself or do I go enlist in the USS Philadelphia? He goes to the USS Philadelphia instead. Um, and what happens to the Philadelphia eventually, I'll just skip through this one. This is a, just an image from um, a fictional captivity narrative um, that was capitalizing on the popularity of uh, Barbary narratives. Um, it's one of a few, there's just a handful, and they're all believed to be fictional accounts of women who were kept captive. Not to say that women weren't taken captive, but they tended not to write narratives about it. Um, the USS Philadelphia, as part of this blockade, is sailing into Tripoli Harbor when it runs aground. And William Ray seems to think it's because of the incompetence of its commander, William Bainbridge, and its first um, mate, David Porter, who later becomes a huge 18, War of 1812 hero. Um, William Ray's criticisms are not widely shared, but um, after it, it becomes grounded, um, the 
Bainbridge decides to run up the flag of surrender. And all 309, I think, crew members of the Philadelphia are taken into slavery, into captivity. Um, later, the ship then floats free on the rising tide. <laughs> so the sailors were very angry about this. Um, and so they spend a total of 19 months in captivity. Um, but about six months into their captivity comes the kind of big event of this first Barbary War, also known as the Tripolitan War, um, in which Stephen Decatur, who was um, also a Philadelphian, um, from a Philadelphia family, um, and who was painted by Gilbert Stuart, again, a, a portraitist of the stars, um, in a daring raid, uh, pictured here in one of many similarly florid um, paintings at the time, um, boards the Philadelphia, which is now in the Tripolitan's possession, in the middle of the night with a raiding party and sets fire to it, thus denying the Tripolitan's use of this big, new, fabulous warship. Um, and this was kind of a burning that could be seen all over the city because, you know, it's a, it's a city around the harbor. The prisoners all knew about it and were thrilled about this. Decatur's in the middle here. He was on the ground, apparently, and shot from underneath um, the uh, whoever was in command of, of the vessel in this particular case. It's an image that recurs and recurs. This is a late 19th century painting um, that's widely used, showing the burning of the Philadelphia. Um, here's another sketch of it. And you can see um, here Tripolitans lamenting, oh, what has happened? While, as you can see, the prison here, um, in which the American sailors would have been kept, themselves um, celebrating um, what they hear. And they suffered serious reprisals afterward. Um, but eventually, um, the, through a series of battles that I can talk about in the Q&A if you're interested, um, this is a, a successful war in the US's part. Um, captivity and impressment continue to be a problem in the War of 1812. But in the aftermath of the War of 1812, these cease to be problems for the American mercantile service. And Philadelphia ceases to be important as a major port city and a major port city for these trades. As the ships get bigger, um, it just can't sustain, for geographic reasons, um, this kind of work. Um, but at the time, this particular moment um, in Tripoli, which if you know the Marine Corps hymn in the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, um, celebrated in song, not just in that particular song. This is just one example um, of many popular tunes that you could play around the parlor um, about the siege of Tripoli. Um, and you can see another similar image of the ship on fire um, in the harbor. Um, and I'll, I'll end here with this image from um, a kind of popular circulation of the images of the importance of the protecting commerce. You remember that from that Birch's views, the war to protect commerce, um, as well as the historical importance of American seamen, not just as political actors, but as themselves literate members of a community who were determined to have a say in how they were represented. So thank you. That's a great question. Um, not entirely. Um, for the most part, these narratives um, 
had less interest in the kind of strict division between Christianity and what would be considered otherwise savagery in the case, in, in this particular case of Islam, um, in the case of, excuse, or, excuse me, earlier American captivity narratives, as our, our expert Chris Castiglia here could, could speak to, um, for Native American captives, um, or captives rather of American Indians, um, where the division in those narratives was really um, highlighted between the religious kinds of differences. The American Barbary narratives point out those differences. And it's certainly not the case that they are always standing in kind of curious admiration of the differences between Christianity and Islam. However, the, those differences are presented more as kind of ethnographic curiosities than they are as reasons alone for coming to um, why sailors needed to be rescued and why um, their captors needed to be punished. For the most part, sailors were more concerned with what they felt to be the abandonment by their nation, by their government, um, in these particular roles. So that kind of abolitionist tendency would emerge um, in a few cases. Riley's is one of them. A few others, William Ray is another, um, a, a, one of the more uh, eloquent of these partisans. A few others pointed out as well, like this is, you know, slavery is not good under any kind of circumstances. Um, few of them became actual active abolitionists in this case. Um, but their concerns were mostly for the, the national and citizenship standing of sailors in this case, which was placed in opposition to their captivity, and to their captors, rather, but not necessarily as a way to kind of make broader religious or, or moral points in that kind of way. Uh, second question, in, in, in Rosen's play, mm -hmm. many of the lead characters are female, particularly captive females. Right. And um, I, I just wondered, you would talk a little bit about the situation of women's role in, in this, how many women were actually captives? Um, you know, relatively few, um, in part because the ships that um, were the captives were taken from tended to be merchant ships um, or naval vessels, and you would have very few women on them. Captains' wives might occasionally there might be some passengers, but for the most part, this is not a kind of passenger route; um, it's a trading route. Um, so the captives that are taken actually off ships didn't include many women. Now, the captives that are taken in raids from French and Spanish towns, coastal towns, would could have more women involved. Um, I don't know as much about the kind of histories of those raids, but whole towns were taken, um, I know. Um, but the, because the slaves were being put to hard use, whether it's galley slaves actually powering the ships, um, a lot of these North African ships were, were oared ships, these Zebek oared ships that needed a lot of manpower. This is the kind of, what is that bad um, cartoon that always is showing? You know, the kind of standard cartoon image of uh, the emaciated guys at the oars. It would be much funnier if I could think of what the actual, it's not the far side. It's like beast, it's not, at, at any rate. Um, there goes my opportunity for, you know, a little situational humor. The, uh, but instead, um, so, so women would be less of a kind of economic exchange value there. They didn't, they couldn't provide the kind of same kind of labor. The reason why Rosen's play is invoking female slaves and the reason why these fictional narratives appear is that one of the kind of Orientalist mythologies is about Muslim harems. And so the image of these Muslim men having you know, 40 wives, 80 wives, 100 wives was uh, quite titillating um, and frightening for some, exciting for others. And so the, the few fictional examples of female captivity narratives always stress either the threat of being taken in um, to these kinds of harems um, or else the kind of possibilities um, and the threats that, uh, I, I think I lost the thread of where I'd begun that sentence, but the, the, most of the emphasis was on that kind of curiosity. 
Um, however, William Ray says in his narrative, um, he, he addresses this head on. He says, I know that most people think that Muslim men have these huge harems, but frankly, most people can't afford it, and they don't want the hassle. Um, and he, he, you know, and he recognizes that a lot of the men around Tripoli had multiple wives, but it was just not, it was, not a, it was a practice that was more of a pain than it was an excitement. But that's why in Rosen's play, um, you see a lot of women, and why in me, mo most of the fictional examples, they're there, um, because there's a kind of threat to the sanctity of white Christian womanhood um, that's just not as a large a part of the historical reality as otherwise. Good questions. Um, where does Jenkins' ear fit into all? I don't, Jenkins ear, what is that? They used to call it the war of Jenkins ear. I, I haven't heard that term. You haven't? No. Who's Jenkins and what happened to his Jenkins ear? Jenkins was a sailor, as I recall, okay. and uh, they were holding it for, and to exercise, they cut his ear off, and, and huh. that's what really enslaved <coughs> the American public. Okay. And they called it, the, the Barbary War, they okay. called the war of Jenkins ear. That's it. Really? Yeah. That's it. Must that's fallen out of the recent yeah. conversation about it? Yeah. I have to look up that. Esther, yeah. this is a question that I asked you just to speculate because there is no real answer. But I'm thinking about being on one of these ships for four years mm -hmm. and Great question. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think they certainly got a, a validation that their lives were fit for the subject of fiction and heroic. Um, you know, many of the novels that are listed are historical novels, and a lot of them are set during earlier times, um, which is the essence of the historical novel, um, which therefore allowed to kind of enact this uh, a kind of national and heroic pride in this way. The, the other thing about it, though, I wonder is um, if, and, and I'm thinking about this really for the first time, um, the diversity of the reading materials aboard ship um, did include these kinds of works, but not exclusively. And I, I do wonder if there was a way in which um, the kind of escape that we presume that fiction was supposed to offer, um, or that in, this, in this, the model that you've set up in this free hour, um, it would be less of the urge than a kind of, in the, within the context of these histories and gentlemen's manuals, a kind of instructive manual, not just in learning how to operate the ropes, because they clearly knew how to do that already, but in a sense that there's a, there are certain kind of models of function. Um, and one of the other instructive elements that I think might possibly be there, too, is um, a kind of honing, and this might be a little too optimistic on my part, a honing of a kind of literary critical edge, because in their own narratives, they talked quite explicitly um, about the criticisms they would make about these sea novels, um, about Cooper's and Scott's novels in particular, because those are the popular sea novels at the time, and Marriott as well. Um, and they would debate whether or not the kind of events described were realistic enough, whether sailors spoke with the proper kind of tone and inflection. And so in that case, I think the familiarity with the subject material might have just given them a way to feel some kind of aesthetic taste or judgment or value in that case would be my speculation there. But do you have any other ideas? 
Well, I'm just wondering if it was a way also to give order to what yeah. was really profoundly yeah. disordered existence. See, and I see, I see the order giving, though, slightly differently. The, for me, the desire for order comes in the narrative, and these narratives are very technical, and they don't explain things. Um, and so I see that kind of desire for order in that incredible minute attention to detail, that rather than, they all go to sea thinking that they're going to see the world. Then they get out there and they realize that looking at the ocean is incredibly tedious, and it looks like a blank. And so then instead they turn inward to the mechanics of the ship, which then get rendered in this exquisite, exquisite detail. And only then with that kind of knowledge, then suddenly the sea doesn't look blank anymore, but it's really a kind of, um, a much more multi-leveled text um, in that kind of case. And so that kind of bringing of order, I see less as a literary function, more of the literary expression that they end up providing. Yeah, I was interested just to expand on that a little bit faster. In the, was it Life in the Mental War, the old Ironside, and honestly, not the Jacket? I was struck by almost the friction there, the, uh, the tension that the author uh -huh. feels about trying to now having um, gained a kind of literacy of what the outside world thinks about right. sailing. And, yeah. and um, using terms like boot and mizzen topman and main topsman. It's, it's in a weird way, it's a text that's reading you as an outsider at the same time, that it's trying to create a language or a literacy. It's not just about, um, it's trying to create a writing or vocabulary. How do we speak to the outside world in mm -hmm. ways that may not be accurately representing us? Um, so it struck me, and just to expand on Chris's point, that that issue of translation, like how do you really translate in our own words and our own experience of what we're doing when we're being represented in these ways that are somewhat imperfect. Yeah. My, my question was going to be more on, I guess we can think about the pianoforte piece here, Rosen's Slaves in Algiers, which was one of only a, a number of different plays that were produced um, uh, on the set um, on, in relationship to the Barbary mm -hmm. War, First Barbary War. What's your sense of, um, even on ship, which I'm really interested mm -hmm. in, what, how prominent theatricals were, like beyond just novel reading, what other cultural forms of um, production and demonstration, yeah. because sailors were so important to the livelihood of theaters mm -hmm. in port cities where they would come off and, and watch plays like mm -hmm. Slaves in Algiers. Who knows what they thought about Slaves in Algiers. Um, but were plays, were any, are there records of plays being produced by sailors, written by sailors, performed by sailors, on ship, off ship? What seems to be the role there? This is my, this is my new project um, oh, really? in, in many, it, it's becoming more so than I expected. Um, theatricals were a major element of 19th century naval voyaging. They should have been merchant ships to a much less degree, but very explicitly on British naval ships and later on US naval ships, um, routine theatricals were a, a regimented, mandated part of the voyage. And that was the recreation that could be controlled. Um, and the, my, I'm doing a, a new project on polar exploration literature, um, and what I've been discovering in that research, um, and something that has come up in the research for this earlier project as well, um, are the extensive records that are left of these theatricals, that aboard ship sailors are writing and printing um, playbills for the, the theatricals, some of which are familiar works. There's Shakespearean plays being performed. There's popular, far, par, popular farces of the day that are recognizable to students of the period. And in many cases, there are new productions that have been written by the sailors. So you have every possibility um, of theatrical performances that are happening. Um, sailors are playing all roles. There are costumes. 
Um, they describe all new costumes and sets. They're designing the sets. This is a, a major element of shipboard life, mostly in the Navy, which is what's really interesting. One of the things that I haven't been able to figure out um, quite yet since my research on this project is preliminary is whether or not other ships were taking up the idea of the theatrical from their experience on a naval ship or if this was something that just doesn't get reported or recorded in the same way on non-naval ships. Um, I have to say that the merchant sailors who are writing narratives of their experience in the first half of the 19th century rarely describe theatricals. They just are not happening on those ships. This could be more of a function of the second half of the century um, on merchant ships. On naval ships earlier, there are theatricals. But on merchant ships in general, there are not. And so one of the things I'm going to be trying to figure out is why that's the case. Um, what, how much, because there's clearly provision made aboard these naval ships for these sets. You know, there's, there's a whole kind of AV club, like a drama club aboard the ship. Um, <laughs> and they all have roles in it. Um, so th that's something that's a, um, a, a quite specialized and really prevalent thing. And so you're absolutely right about that. Sailors are very much involved in theatricals. And at every, every level, you know, they're doing like plays about Charles II and farces called, like, one of them is called, like, the mate's monkey or something like that. Just, you know. So we've got one over here. Um, in the 19th century, you have the idea emerging of like American individualism. You have Monroe and you have Whitman. And I'm just wondering if that idea translated onto the ship or whether once you got on the ship, it was more about the collective, more like the famous image of like walking the plane. <laughs> Yeah, you know, sailors are, are collective workers, but they're at this very kind of strange position in the history of labor. Um, sailors are wage laborers. They're getting a wage for their job. They're not indentured servants. They, they don't, they're not part of a kind of feudal labor system in that sense. They are wage, labor, wage, labor, uh, wage laborers in a capitalistic system. However, they can't walk off the job, right? It's not like a job that it works from eight to six. The job doesn't end either. It doesn't stop. Um, you, you are working in shifts on the one hand, but if there's a storm or if there's a problem, you can't just say, no, I'm not working right now. You know, there's no overtime. So it's a, an antiquated structure. There's an antiquated kind of field for that labor that's getting paid under modern wage structures. And so sailors become necessarily collective because they can't um, act as individuals based in part upon... Um, a maritime system that is incredibly hierarchical. Um, you may know that you know mutiny is published by, punished by death. That you know there really aren't any other exceptions to that. Um, and so you know you can imagine that there are other jobs in which if you got really angry and told the boss like you're not worthy of being the boss, you might get fired, or beaten, or arrested, but you wouldn't necessarily be killed as a result of that action, right? Um, so that's part of it. Um, you know the other the other aspect about that kind of labor system that's important to recognize. Um, we, when we call, um, what we call collectivities of workers who choose to stop their labor in the hopes of receiving better treatment, we call a strike. And this is a word that actually comes from the maritime world, um, from two very famous labor actions that happened in the British Navy, um, two mutinies, um, one at the Noor and one at Spithead, and this is in the late 18th century. Um, and the word strike comes from when sailors struck their sails and refused to sail. Um, the, the time British naval um, sailors had not had a raise in 100 years. The food, they had no food. It was everything was disgusting. It was hard, you know, the conditions were just horrible. And so they refused to sail. 
and they got a, a positive response the first time. Um, and wages were raised, conditions were improved. A few months later, they tried it again, and then reprisals came. And you know, many were punished as a result of it. But so the first kind of collective labor actions that um, were called by this name, um, it, it derives from sailor agency. And so sailors, for the most part, don't talk about um, individualism in the terms that have come to be popular ones. Um, they're, you know, they, they're proud of the United States. They like being American in many ways. But these are not overtly nationalistic texts, in part because the, the crews are multinational crews. It's very rare to find a crew that's entirely American citizens, even in the Navy, where it would be predominantly, but not entirely, by a long stretch. And on, um, as you go down the lines of kind of prestige and eliteness of ships, whaling ships are incredibly racially, nationally, ethnically diverse. Um, and naval ships are to a lesser degree, but still are. So um, the, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think of sailing ships as these nationalistic vessels, because the crews never were. A good question. Mr. Just a brief footnote to the theatrical question. Uh -huh. And this goes back to the Weiss and the Marquis years ago. Mm -hmm. The very first recorded performance of a Shakespeare play outside of England was in 1607 on a British, I believe, merchant ship mm -hmm. off the coast of Africa. Mm -hmm. The sailors performed Hamlet, and they invited four African chieftains to come aboard and to watch. Wow. We have a record of what those sailors Wow, that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> when, when the sailors were on these very bold trips and they stopped at ports, was there interaction between different ships? And you talked about the libraries as being self-contained mm -hmm. units. Would they trade? Yes. Both instincts are absolutely correct. They um, fraternized with other sailors. They fraternized with the locals. Um, they traded books among other ships. They did this constantly. Whether they were in port or not, sometimes they would meet at sea um, and trade reading materials. Um, this was, as well as trading members of the ships themselves, um, the, these kinds of interactions and exchanges happen constantly. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Hester, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the city part uh -huh. of the story. Um, you know, in this wonderful and multi-layered story that you have described about movement and that description mm -hmm. of movement, I was wondering how it affects the identity of the city, yeah. whether this identity is uh, something that the city takes upon by itself, or whether it's an identity that is imposed on the city by the nation, or whether even you use the word identity in conjunction with the city. That's... You know, from a sailor's perspective, the differences in cities had very much to do with um, the, what the waterfront presented to them. Some cities were known for having you know, particularly friendly taverns and brothels. Um, some cities were known for being particularly um, uh, hostile places in terms of impressment or other kinds of you know, violent, coercive um, what's the, the word I'm looking for, um, the, the, the kind of capture onto other ships. Um, landlords play a big role in this as well. These are um, where sailors could store whatever earthly goods they had while at sea. Um, the, some cities would regulate them far more than others. Um, 
what, what's interesting about the sailors' perspective is that they're not always coming into the kind of major cosmopolitan cities, like the Port of New York or the Port of Philadelphia. Um, some of the smaller ports along the way are much more frequented by sailors, um, ones that had huge amounts of trade, but not necessarily a huge amount of population. Um, so in, as a kind of identity question, the, the perspective that I have gleaned from my reading of sailor narratives um, has much less to do, and this is just talking about US cities for a moment here, because their encounter with um, cities and the course of their travels was also had a, a more, much more of a kind of sociological curiosity to it, but still didn't range very far beyond the port. For one, because they weren't really allowed to. Um, shore leave or liberty, as it was called, um, was not a very long thing, and not everyone got it. Um, one of the other factors here has to do with the fact that um, it's in the work of Jeffrey Bolster, who wrote a book called Blackjacks about black seamen, um, he, one of his arguments, and it's a persuasive one, is that free black sailors were actually in more danger um, in ports than enslaved ones were, um, because having liberty, um, getting to go ashore um, for a free black sailor um, in slave cities um, would always run the risk of a kind of recapture into slavery or capture into slavery. Um, so the kind of different perspectives very much depend on what a city would offer to a sailor and how friendly it was. And that's why these Siemens Bethels, these Siemens charitable organizations that would cluster on the waterfront as well, um, became really prominent. And a lot of, they provided old age homes, sailor rest homes, um, a lot of these exist today. Um, and so the, the kind of identity formation had much less to do with a kind of feeling of um, a national pride or a national sense of what American cities should offer as the following things. But it was very much contingent and dependent upon um, what those individual cities were offering. I'm not sure if that is answering the essence of your question. Um, I, I really like your talk a lot. Um, I thought it was really Yeah, no, thank you. Great question. Um, in the early period that this class is focused on, um, sailor narratives tended to be published, printed privately for the author at various printing houses, which was consistent with the state of printing and publication more generally in the period. There aren't major publishing houses in the same way. There are a few. Matthew Carey's is one of them. We've heard about that one this semester. Um, but for the most part, and Carey did publish some sailor narratives. But sailors would write a narrative of their voyage. They would take them to their local printer. Most of these are printed in um, the town that the sailor was either from or had ended up in um, and were circulated among family and friends and one way or the other made their way into the archives. Later in the century, and especially after um, the War of 1812 produced a bunch of naval memoirs of the war, which started to get more popularity and more circulation, not coincidentally because the publication world and the world of print was expanding um, in the 1820s and 1830s. And by the time Richard Henry Dana's narrative was published in 1840, when um, 
the various printing technologies had made mass printing and mass distribution a lot easier. Um, sailor, certain sailor narratives really kind of hit the big time. But for the most part, they still remained relatively locally printed and circulated. Um, so sailor narratives from the 1840s and 50s and 60s, um, you still find many, if not most of them, probably most of them, would be printed for the author in Troy, New York, you know, printed for the author in Albany, printed for the author in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Um, and they would presumably have found some, I, when I started this, my first book, I, I had it in mind that I was going to be able to tell much more of a history of the maritime book uh, story to see exactly who was printing them, how widely they were circulating. That was the information I was actually looking for. But the, there are no printing houses that are predominantly presenting these kinds of works. You know, Dana's book is published by Harper's, but very few sailors, almost nobody else had that kind of luxury. Um, and so the, the kind of localities there, and the, I, I wasn't able to trace those answers in the way that I wanted to, um, but the, the popularity of certain of those sailor narratives authorized and licensed other sailors to make those stories known. Many of these narratives exist in manuscript form as well. They were kept journals aboard ship that either never found their way into print or the sailor never desired to have them into print um, and have come to us in other archival ways. Um, but they didn't have, um, they had a, a kind of explosive popularity on the one hand, but the few that were explosively popular were the ones that tended to be with the larger houses. And I mean, that's a pretty obvious relationship. But good question. Please join me in giving Pastor Boom a richly deserved applause. And I look forward to seeing all of you back here uh, next week for David Lips' discussion on his novel and the previous evening, right? There's a the 7.30 event at Lip, LipCon on the ground uh, at the Palm. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for all your help. Sure.